0: If you try to balance your writing career against your parenting as though it's on a scale, like I'm balancing my life like a scales of justice scale, and there's only these two things, and one goes up and the other goes down. If you try to do that, you are guaranteed to be miserable because when your parenting is going great, you will think that your writing is going badly. And when your writing is going great, you will feel like your parenting is going badly. And that is not how one should look at life.
1: I'm Caitlin Salamini, and this is the Postpartum Production Podcast. Every other week, I talk with artists who are also mothers and caregivers about their postpartum creative process. You can find out more about the podcast at www.postpartumproduction.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Today, we're talking to M.M. M. DeVoe, a writer of internationally acclaimed speculative literary fiction and poetry. Born to a traditional Lithuanian family of six in College Station, Texas, M, as her writer friends call her, was raised Catholic and bilingual by an organic chemistry researcher and a Montessori directress. She's lived in Germany, Baltimore, and New York City, and she's the founder of the literary nonprofit Pen Parentis and the author of the fun instructional memoir, Book and Baby, which won first place in writing publishing at the 2021 Indie Awards. She lives in Manhattan, where, as she puts it, she spends her days reveling in irony. It's so nice to finally and officially meet you, Milda MM. You have many identities, you hold many different spaces for many different people, and you have a lot on your plate. I mean, all of the cliches, but I'm excited to dig in and to learn a lot more about you because we've met only online and virtually, I believe via your incredible organization and community called Pen Parentis. And so I am honored and excited to talk to you today to learn more about your background, to learn more about why you care about the subject matter of the intersection of parenting and writing, which is obviously such an important piece of this podcast. So let's talk like, where do we start? I actually, I don't know much about you as a parent. I know some about you as a writer. I know about you in the organization, but I'd love to hear a little bit about like your personal background in terms of your position in your family and like what that looked like and how you came to write and
0: all the messiness of that. <laughs> Yeah, sure. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for having me on your show. It's really nice to be here. I like doing shows. It's fun. <laughs> and it's really, really cool to see you. <laughs> like, yeah. like, is that like I mean, I, I meet so many people on email and online, and I don't right. get to actually see who they are. And I don't know, maybe if one good thing came out of the pandemic, it's that mm-hmm. we get to be more connected with people who are far away from us. And I think that mm-hmm. that's really, really cool. So yeah, so your question was, what's my life like? My mm-hmm. life is walking chaos like everybody's. <laughs> I have two kids. My kids are currently old now. They are budding adults. My daughter is 15 and my son is almost 20. He's going to be 20, which is like oh mind blowing. It's every time a child goes through from one phase to another, it's such an extraordinary moment where you just look back and go, What, how did this happen? Like when the infants suddenly start moving, like Mm -hmm. you put them down and they stay for so long that you get used to it. And then the first time that they actually are mobile on their own, you're like, Whoa, my brain, like this whole thing is going to (laughs) happen. And then it happens again, you know, when they go to school and you're like, wait, I have some free time. I don't know what this is like to have free time. Mm -hmm. And then it happens again when they are Smart, All of a sudden, like they have their own ideas that are like, wait, it's not just cute and clever. It's like, wait, no, you thought this through. And it's quite smart. There's a wonderful thing there.
1: <laughs> you're Sorry, laughing because you're seeing my child. Yeah. No one can I see am, that. What's that? Was, funny. The, the madness. Yeah. So speaking <laughs> of phases, right. I'll just say that my daughter who is six is, is on summer break and we're all navigating. I'm sure all the creative mothers and parents that are that are listening in will understand the challenges of school schedules
0: the sudden appearance of somebody who is always there yeah (laughs) (laughs) the kid who's about to turn 20 it's that's a crazy thing because like these are ages like Mm. when they start turning i think 15 is really the one where you're like Mm. i have full memory of myself at 15 Mm. I have mm. full memory of what I was like, what my decision making was like, what my mm. goals were when I was mm. like, I, it's like you're a real person in that late teen mm-hmm. years. And the mm-hmm. the older they get, the more of your own memories you have that mm. of yourself at that age. And so mm. you can, in a way, I was able to much easier, I can much more easily empathize with mm. troubles that a 20 year old has than you know, I can I can sympathize with a six year old, but I can empathize with a twenty year old. So it's pretty interesting. And of course, they're nothing like you ever because they're your kids. So gonna... <laughs> what is a kid's majorest thing is to not be like their mother? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> they spend their babyhood trying to be their mother, and then they spend the rest of their childhood trying to be nothing like their mother. <laughs> I don't know; it's pretty. funny. So,
1: what does that mean? What are you? Who is their mother?
0: Well, I don't like know. You. You, you, I mean, your <laughs> you? mother, so like, they're going to try not to be <laughs> yeah. like you, I guess, or or hopefully yeah. they'll be, she they'll embrace both sides—the mm. side that they want to be like and the side that they mm. don't. I don't know. Mm. We'll see. It's all a mystery. It's all just fun to watch. I like watching <laughs> my kids get independent and do cool things. Yes. Yeah, Have so, you been writing throughout yeah. that period? Oh, so I've went through so many phases of writing. So when they were infants, I wrote with them on my writing table. Like mm-hmm. I had set up, I have a very large, I, I had it built. Mm. It's a, it's an extraordinarily large desk with, and it, the the top part of it is big enough that you can put a bassinet on it. And oh so when they were infants, I had oh, that's brilliant. on my desk. So, huh. so then I didn't, cause I don't like baby monitors. And I don't, I don't like, I don't like electronics in general. They bother me. I break <laughs> them. And, so a lot of the time, like when they were little, little, I would have them on my writing space. I would be on my desk when they were babies and sleeping for nap times, not bedtimes, but nap times. And then like there were the Jiminy. Do people still do mm-hmm. the, it's like a It's like a blanket with this mobile that's like on top of the blanket. And it's got mm-hmm. like things that you bat around the handles and things. And they Mm -hmm. were in primary color. They were not primary color. They were in red, black, and white so that the infant could see it. You know, it was like this very, the original er, err. This is an educational toy. The child will grab it, you know? (laughs) Okay. But anyway, it was on the floor next to me so that I could watch my kid play and sometimes type and sometimes look at them. So I did that. And then they graduated to bouncy seats where I could watch them play and talk to them while I was writing. And then... I like to write. I really like to. And whether it's emails or grants or short stories or novels, I'm always producing something on a page somewhere. Hmm. And I think what I like is communication. I think I really Hmm. believe that communication is going to save the world. I think that that's important. I think somebody needs to be thoughtful in what they put out, but there needs to also be the thoughtfully intaking on the other side. I'm into that. Hmm.
1: What resonates with me there is that I see that so much in pen parentis. And I'm curious if that was part of the impetus or like where that came about, because to start these kind of organizations is no small, feat, especially <laughs> while you're also working on your own work, while you're also raising your children. So, what is the background to Pen Prentice? Because sure. I actually don't know that totally either. Totally
0: discovering this on mm-hmm. the way as I go. With how much work it is. Um, mm-hmm. So originally, I was just a writer. I had my MFA from Columbia. And then the World Trade Center happened and it was really Mm -hmm. on top of my house. Like I live across the street from World Trade Center. And so when that happened, it crashed my whole writing career, too, because I was Mm -hmm. writing about that. And I actually had a piece accepted in The New Yorker. And then it got bumped for Susan Sontag's piece Mm -hmm. on the terrorism flying into the that piece, I got a call from the New Yorker saying, well, we said we were going to run your talk of the town piece, but we got the Susan Sontag thing. So. <laughs> so I was like, oh, okay. So so then I just wrote other things and sent off other mm-hmm. things, you know, but it was all sort of tied into that whole 9-11 mm-hmm. moment. Mm-hmm. And when the money finally came from the government to fund the arts downtown, which was in 2008, I was at the grant writing seminar for a neighbor of mine. A neighbor of mine had hurt herself. She had broken her ankle and she she was a visual artist. And she asked if I would go and listen in on this grant writing seminar. And so I went and they, during the seminar, an intern came running in like excitedly going, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, they just funded 250,000 extra dollars to this grant. And the person who was giving the grant presentation said, okay, friends, if you can come up with any artistic thing, this is the time to do it. And so I was like, I walked out of that thing going, okay, that's like a message. It's like a call. You have to do something. You have to bring arts downtown. And being a writer, I was like, okay. I called my friend who is a grants writer. And I was like, Hey, can you please sit down with me and let's write a grant and we're going to do something. And what we originally thought we were going to do was like a three-day symposium for writers that are parents, because each of us had kids by this time, neither of us was getting ahead on our novels. We were like, how in the world, how do people do this? How mm. do human beings who have children finish novels? We know it happens, but we could not figure out how. So we were like, let's do a three-day symposium where there's like panels on writing with a kid, panels on how to get money, panels on where to find the time, panels on how to recreate your energy level, like all the stuff. And the, of course, the symposium did not get funded because this was an arts symposium. And they're like, no, no, we're here to fund the arts, not to fund education and support for artists. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, I understand the government now. This is like line item. You must check the item. I literally said on the phone to this person, so if I did a reading series, would that be funded? And they were like, oh, yeah, I think so. I think that would be a no-brainer. So I'm like, dude, I can do a reading series. So I went back to my friend. I'm like, dude, let's do a reading series. And she was like, yeah, okay. So we did this reading series called the Pen Parentis After Work Reading Series, where we Mm -hmm. literally called friends and people that we knew, people we had heard had just had a child, and we brought them on the stage in, in pairs so that they could just, like literally we needed to know how they did it. And we would, every single time they would do their reading. And then and we were always at a swanky bar and it was like, <laughs> w- how did you do it? <laughs> where, did you, where did you find time? How would you write this book? <laughs> we had extraordinary readers come. Like Darren Strauss was like our second reader or something. Like, I don't even know. We had great, great, great readers. I think Kara Hoffman might've been our first Kara Hoffman and Rebecca Donner, I think, were our very mm-hmm. first reader, like amazing writers. Mm-hmm. And they were just starting out and they had kids and they were like, oh, yeah, it's really hard. And like, they'll be, oh, yeah, I, I write at the table with the child next to me or I, I hide in the closet while the child's watching Door the Explorer mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. like all these crazy ways to get time to write. And we were like, oh, so basically what you're saying is it's hard, but if you want to do it, you're going to do it. That seems really hard. <laughs> That seems really unreasonable. and But it was like, well, either that or you give up. Like, we didn't want to give up either. So a year into doing the reading series, people kept coming up to me and saying, like, I want to join this. And I'm like, there's nothing to join. It's a reading series. Mm -hmm. They're like, no, 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 you're, you're making this community. I want to join this community. And I was like, what is this? And so I did this. I started a fellowship Just to reach out across the country so that I could see if there were more people that might want to be involved in this kind of a thing. And I got letters that, with the, like people would enter, but they would write letters that were like, I have never been so seen no, like, you don't understand, like, all my entire writing group stopped talking to me when I had a child, because they didn't understand why I couldn't show up all the time. They said I was inconsistent. I mean, I would get these, like, sob stories. I was like, dude, we need an organization. (laughs) Like There needs to be one. And at first, I tried to copy She Writes, which was a for profit, Mm -hmm. you had to pay to get through to the back end, like, you had to pay up front, I think, to, to do anything. And I was like, I could do that. But then I didn't want I don't like things where you have to pay to play, like where you have to pay to see anything that seemed like, oh, I didn't like that part of the internet. And so I didn't want to be like that. So I was like, well, I'll just make it a membership thing. And then I didn't, I'm not very good with numbers. So I was like, oh, I don't know how to do this. And actually a lawyer who had been coming to the salons on a regular basis came to me. She's like, you know what? We can just pro bono do the paperwork and you can be a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh that's much more my speed. I 100% like I believe in it as a cause and I'm passionate about helping writers stay creative after they have kids. And she's like, that's your mission statement right there. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> that makes it very easy. And so it was really almost kismet. Like it was pr- pretty great that the way that that happened. And it wasn't until 2018 that we started doing the meetups, which really are a Like our repeat donors, we have repeat donor subscribers that we call title members. Those members are able to come to online Zooms where they can get together with other writers that are parents and create these little literary communities that meet once a week and they meet at the same time all the time and they set goals. And the goals are like there's a team leader, the goals are measurable at the end of the next week, they talk about whether they did it or they didn't, and then they change. And it's, it's a very flexible system. So you're not, it's not like you're pushing yourself to try to achieve as much as you can. Instead, you're trying to actually understand where your new life is. In other words, every time your kid changes, your whole entire writing life changes. And if you can accept that and just kind of go with it, then it becomes not hard anymore. I mean, it's, it's always hard. <laughs> Let me just say that it is always hard. A different different kind of hard at that point. <laughs> it's, you're not struggling against guilt. The struggling against guilt is, I think, something that blocks people from their writing. When they're like, oh, I'm taking away from my family by taking this writing time. If you try to balance your writing career against your parenting as though it's on a scale, like I'm balancing my life like a scales of justice scale, and there's only these two things, and one goes up and the other goes down. If you try to do that, you are guaranteed to be miserable. Because when your parenting is going great, you will think that your writing is going badly. And when your writing is going great, you will feel like your parenting is going badly. And that is not how one should look at I mean, I just 100% think that that is a wrong way to look at life. I think that you should look at your life as a mobile, like a giant Calder mobile with a thousand things hanging off of it, And these things are all different sizes. And every time you add a new thing to the mobile, the whole entire mobile has to shift so that you can have some balance in your life. And that's what I think parenting balance looks like. And I think that's what life balance looks like in general. So you have this mobile, and then you have like a giant thing that is your career. And you have a giant thing that is your, you know, each person in your family is one Mm -hmm. thing. And your own self-care is one thing. And you have all these other passions, maybe even your own self-care isn't a thing. Maybe each thing that you do, like a yoga class or a, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you're a musician, you love to play piano, maybe that's a thing. And maybe there are things that you did in college that might make you happy that you haven't done in a long time. So they're teeny little things like art or whatever thing that is not your main passion. Mm -hmm. And All those things are like on this big mobile and then crazy life things how you have to buy a house. Well, there's a giant thing that's going to disrupt everything. And I think Mm -hmm. that your life is just this constant disruption of this mobile and you just have to keep working it out so that, you know, move things closer, move things farther away, move into your life, lean out, do all the Mm -hmm. things to keep this giant conglomeration of flying things kind of stable in your life Mm -hmm. as much as you can. And every once in a while, something's going to come and just there will be a pandemic, <laughs> which will make it completely crazy. It's like a wind that <laughs> blows the whole thing, and you just try to keep finding that stability. And I, I think it's po- not just possible. I think it's like everybody can do this. It's just hard,
1: <laughs> and it's just hard. Do you think? All. I guess. The, do you think it needs to be as hard as it has feels like it's become? I mean, obviously the pandemic aside, but there's been a lot written recently and deservedly so, about modern motherhood, about things that, you know, child care, about lack of maternity leave, about lack of federal maternity, I mean, yeah, all of these things I that are, say, you know.
0: Definitely. So one thing that is really upsetting to the whole mobile model is the fact that when you are a parent, you have fewer resources, you have less time, energy, and money, you have fewer resources to devote to any other thing than parenting. And that can be helped if for instance if the country gave you childcare money you could or if you had a job where they allowed longer parental leave like there are ways that the society as a whole can support parenthood without outright paying parents to be parents because it's not a job and you shouldn't be paid to be a mom. If you were, you you would have to take vacations and you'd have to like, in fact, I wrote a really crazy sci-fi book about this, like where I, everybody's a paid parent <laughs> and it's a disaster because people, of course, hate their jobs because it's a job. <laughs> if you equate parenthood with a career job, then you have denigrated your career job and you have denigrated your parenthood because parenthood is so much bigger, so much deeper, so much more permanent. It's, you can't walk away from it. You can't take a vacation from it. Like you're a parent. Even if you give up your kid for adoption, that second you have it, you are still a mom somewhere in your mm-hmm. head and it is going mm-hmm. to affect you. And there's also no winning in parenthood. Like you can't, Do all the steps that this book says and Mm -hmm, have the perfect mm -hmm, child. mm -hmm, Like it just mm -hmm, doesn't work that way. mm -hmm. You might feel, I think that if we as a world were to value parenthood for what it is, which is it's a life thing. It's a big biological change in your life. And it is a role. It's a life role. It's like when you become Mm -hmm. a big sister or when Mm -hmm. it's a new role, you become a wife That's a big difference in your life. And you have to negotiate how this identity change changes you. It's not a job job. There's a lot of work to be done. There's a lot of stuff that has to get done. But if it was a job, we could all like be the CEO. We could all succeed. We could, there there would be check marks Mm -hmm. that you could just do it. And then it would be like, okay, now I'm a good parent. Oh, oh, Mm -hmm. I win. My child is perfect. Like it doesn't.
1: No, I hear you. I think it just feels like I'm bound by two things that,
0: Society doesn't and support, and both of those things are twenty four seven. Add that to the mix, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. being a writer or an artist is a twenty four seven. You are always like, oh, that idea. I have to go write it down. It's four in the morning, but I am going to go write it down, or I'm going to lose it. Right? And if your kid gets up with a flu at four in the morning, guess who's on? Like, you're going to go and do your parenting job. <laughs> you're going to go mm-hmm. and like take care <laughs> of that So they are twenty four seven things mm-hmm. that are always competing for, but so here's what at pen is what we just say is break it down into time, energy, and money, decide what's important and what you want to do. So what we are really into setting goals. So if you, let's say want to write your memoir. Okay. So what's the first step in writing your memoir? Do you do, are you an outliner or do you just want to start writing? And either one of those things is fine. There's no, again, like in parenting, There's no right answers. There's only finished products. And you hope that those finished products are great. (laughs) It's just like how you get, you know, like it's the process and you're trying to be good and kind and do your best and do do as much as you can. And whatever you do is fine. Whatever you actually do is fine. There was that great study. Did you read that great study about parenthood? There's a really good study. So at the beginning of the pandemic, we actually had this um, home. So when everybody was on lockdown... Right. We brought on this uh, psychologist and her uh, her name is Michelle Tishy. So her focus was on homeschooled children and it is for holistic health of the whole family if the parents are working from home and the children are homeschooled. So this was already her expertise when lockdown hit. So we had her come on and we did two, we called them sanity lunches that where we just had her come and I interviewed her about like how things were and people ask questions about how to like get through, how to write it when you have kids around underfoot all the time because we're all on lockdown together and your husband's on a conference call and your spouse is doing something else, like whatever, like this is right. And what she said was that there's studies done that you literally... If you have quality time, it's like this exercise thing where they're like, 20 minutes a day is enough. 20 minutes a day is apparently enough for parenthood. 20 minutes of supremely great quality time with your child allows that child to feel like their parent actually cares about them. And then everything else is just grape jelly. Like it's all just bonus. You know, (laughs) like it doesn't hurt the child, but it's great, right? That's cool, right? That there's like this, oh, that's not very much time. <laughs> mm-hmm. We're trying to pack it in so that it's every second that the child is awake, we must do wonderful, educational, good things with them. Like, mm-hmm. no, you just have to love them and be around sometimes for 20 minutes. Like, mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> After this conversation was recorded, I found a Washington Post article written about the study. It's interesting that the researchers found no relationship between the amount of parents' time and children's outcomes, which, on the one hand, could alleviate guilt if a parent has, say, only 20 minutes of quality time to spend with their child a day, but on the other, could indicate that the impact of spending more time with their kids may actually have negative effects on their children. I have to admit I felt some alleviated guilt as I recorded this podcast episode while my daughter was just finished kindergarten for the year, and so she sat in the office during this recording, drawing some pictures of cats, skimming a few books, and only occasionally interrupting me to help open a crayon box for her or search for a fresh sheet of paper. I'm sure you've also seen the research around boredom in kids and how fruitful it is. The conversation and this research also had me thinking about the work of a fellow writer and friend who i used to know back at the uh, sf writers grotto her name's julie lithcott hames she has a wonderful book called how to raise an adult break free of the overparenting trap and prepare your kid for success it focuses on ways in which children should be allowed to make their own mistakes and develop resilience resourcefulness and inner determination and how to redefine what success looks like for both children and for parents. This conversation with MM had me thinking about that and the ways in which we can easily over-parent our children as much as we could under-parent them. And the balance of that is obviously really important, as that research that MM referenced points out. I feel like given the number of distractions that we all sit with, that I'm just as guilty as the next person of like being pulled to these destructive devices. And those 20 minutes I feel like are just so hard for us, not because they're not, we can't carve that out, but because we're not as good at letting go of every, like being really present with a child requires an ability to really, like you said, in terms of your writing or whatever else you're balancing of like setting all of that aside and really sitting with your child it's hard, just as it I is mean, with your work, right? Like how to your how writing to block work out one is, thing yeah.
0: and do one thing at a time. It's it mm-hmm. really hard, and I think that's a learnable skill. I know that mm-hmm. when I had little littles at home, I had to set a timer because the minute I would start writing, mm-hmm. like I was in Zen space, and I don't know what the day is or that the fact that I have to pick up a child in ten minutes. Like I had to set a timer, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> or nobody was getting picked up. And that didn't mean I don't love them. It just meant I was really deep into my writing and I wasn't paying attention to the clock, which is the best way to get writing done is to not pay Mm -hmm. attention to the clock, right? But the same thing, like if you're super deep into playing with your kid, you can be like, oh my God, I have a meeting. I have to go, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And I think that that immersiveness is something that we should all go for. We mm-hmm. all have these phones, they have time. Oh my God, I have seven million texts. Um, we all have these phones that have timers on them and also texts. But those, they, we could use that. Let yourself be immersed for however long. I don't see a downside to using a timer.
1: I want to hear from you. What do you think about timers for creative work? Let me know. Contact me at hello at postpartumproduction.com. Also, be sure to stay for the end of the episode for my daughter's take on timers. Are there specific examples you can think of where you've seen what this kind of community does oh, and provides? for sure. You know?
0: There is a guy named Ralph who was a corrections officer at Rikers Island a long time ago. And then he left to be a social worker and has three teenagers. And he came to our group having somebody else told him like he should join. And he came and he was like, I want to write a memoir, but I've never written anything. And I don't know how to do any of this and like not educated in writing. Right. And I mean, I think he had taken like one creative writing class and liked it. So we sat down with him. We're like, okay, so he needed to develop a writing discipline. And so at first he said, oh, he was going to write this whole story that he was going to write. And when it became clear that he was not going to be writing this story, we changed, shifted the goals. And we finally got it to the point where we realized that what he needed was he personally needed to record his story as he told it out loud, because he was so used to telling stories out loud and really a raconteur, like so Mm -hmm. fun to listen to, hilarious. And so he he ended up recording his story and then typing it. And it Mm -hmm. worked for him. Like that was just a process that worked, but it took 15 different things to do. Mm -hmm. Anyway... He ended up in a different, he ended up having to shift times because, of course, times, whatever. His second group, he wrote uh, tiny, teeny, tiny little op-eds for Newsweek magazine. Mm-hmm. Two got published by Newsweek. He wrote these responses to the things that were happening on Rikers Island, like from his own perspective as a former corrections person. And also being Hispanic, he had this uh, the Latinx look of the, the race, what was going on. And so he wrote these two tiny little op-eds And an agent saw them and signed him to write his memoir. Mm, mm. So it is like totally doable. Like I had a woman who she was an award finalist, like a big, big award finalist. And she had just had her first child, a, a little boy. And had not been writing for six months, had written nothing. This is after the infancy. Like the child was about six months old and she was like, I should be writing. Like I'm sitting in front of my computer, but I can't deal. I can't do it. The first steps for her that she chose were to just literally open the laptop every day. Not Mm -hmm. even do anything, but just open that file and then just close it. And it took her, I would say it took her about 12 weeks And by the end of the 12 weeks, she was back to writing her usual 2,500 words a day, which was her normal pattern. And she was just back on. And now she's off teaching other people motivational like writing and stuff. Mm. It really, really helps to have a community that gets where you are. And one of the things that I'm really adamant about in each one of these circles is that we definitely mix people up. Like We mix up people of different education levels. We mix up people with different age level kids. Because on the one Mm -hmm. hand, you might be really, you know, you might have four kids and know exactly how to get a toddler to stop crying. Here are 400 Mm -hmm. ways to get a toddler to suddenly be helpful in the kitchen, whatever. But you might have that expertise and never have... Gotten an agent and have no idea how to get an agent. Whereas this other person might have a newborn and just be like, oh my God, I've never heard of hoof and mouth disease. And I think this is the worst thing I've (laughs) ever heard of, you know? And, but at the same time, that person might be like, oh yeah, here's four references for like how to build a character and whatever. And so we really pool resources in these groups. They become actual literary communities where a little cluster of 10 people that care about you, they care about your writing, they care that you are writing at all. They're not judging you on your writing. Like writing workshops can sometimes get judgy. They're very necessary. They're a great way to learn. If you have a good writing group, it's really useful. But for people who are in a place where they're uncertain about their writing and in that it's just writing or not writing is where they're stuck. These groups are really, really good for that. And also just to finish things. It's just so nice to have accountability in general. That's why everybody wants an agent, right? It's not so much so that they can like do their contract. It's so that you'd have a person who cares whether or not you finish your next novel. Mm-hmm. It's that first step of, I want to read your work. And so like in these groups, people do, they are sometimes each other's readers. They are sometimes each other's workshop. They are sometimes, they do the sensitivity reading. There's all kinds of partnerships that happen within these groups. But what we're really there for officially is just accountability. Just show up, show up for your writing, and make some goals that have to do with your writing and then have this group of people who get what you're going through. Like, okay, your child has COVID. I get it. You're going to be busy. You can't stop that. But there's somebody that cares about you. They care that you're writing. They care that you Mm -hmm. are a writer in addition to everything else that you have to do.
1: Yeah. I think it goes back to what we were talking about really early on in this conversation, which is visibility and relevance, right? Of just feeling like the work. And I think that happens in parenting too. So again, I was, you know, there's a lot of, yeah. yeah. I was just going
0: to say that, the earlier when you were talking about how like you didn't feel valued for being a parent in a way, it's sort of that you're not being seen. If you're doing your job perfectly, then nobody notices it. Right. (laughs) Like they're, they're all like, Of course, the house is clean. Of course, the child is clean. Of course, the child is well-fed. Naturally, the child is happy. Whereas if you do anything differently that suddenly like, oh, the child is dirty, you have to justify that. Well, the child was playing in the mud and the child needed Mm -hmm. some mud time. You have to justify everything that you do that's like the slightest bit off. Mm. And yet there's no, oh, but for four weeks in a row, everything's been so perfect that you haven't even taken notice of it you know, it's just like ordinary life for you. Whereas for me, Mm -hmm. it's like so much work to get it to that level. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think that being seen is important.
1: Yeah. Well, I think also, like you mentioned too, that writing, especially writing longer projects, or I think you know doing any sort of artistic pursuit that isn't this immediately digestible and like send offable object, whether that's something that just takes, not to say that something shorter form doesn't also take a really long time. And certainly when you're a parent, it can. (laughs) As a novelist, I think I've really struggled because it just feels so it's just as amorphous as parenting, honestly. Right. I mean, a novel, it's like, when are you done with the novel? Like when do you have, where do you see the material finished product and and parenting is so similar too, right? Like you were saying, like then your children grow up. And I guess you could argue like, okay, once they're, fully formed and functioning and self-independent and confident humans then then you have accomplished your goal and again it's like it's overlaid with this idea of what we do in society right and that in the US there's such a value around this idea that there has to be this tangible finished project. Well, and
0: also this, this judgment on that, this Mm. judgment on when you said, Oh, well, they're out in the world. Well then, so what happens? So then if they have to come back and live your house, you Mm. failed. What does that mean? Mm. We are constantly rating ourselves. And that's why, again, like, I wish that parenthood could just be like, nobody says, "Oh, you're a good sister today, but yesterday you were a terrible sister. And tomorrow you're a great (laughs) sister because you threw a party. Nobody does that with any of their other roles, maybe spouse, But you just, in parenthood, we're just judging it all the time. So here's the thing. If you have a corporate job and your parent has Alzheimer's, nobody's going to fire you or think that you are a bad person because you have to go and pick up your dad and take your dad back to the thing. If you are a parent and your child has a fever, let me tell you that the corporate world does not love it that you are going to pick up your child from daycare and bring them home. It is so judged in a different way and it doesn't make sense that it is judged in this different way but it really really is. We really judge parents on their children. We judge them on their children's behavior. We judge them on their own behavior. I don't know. It's a really odd thing. Hmm. And we just and we just yeah, do it. I feel like there is <laughs> such a
1: cultural component there because having spent time outside of the US and I'm sure you could speak to this too because you also have, you know, a more international background and as I know that you're Lithuanian American and you bring that into your work as well, but I don't think that, and this is obviously so culturally specific depending on the location, but I feel like children even and their opinions and their voices are valued in such a different way in places that aren't the United States. That's so true. And so also, and then they're seeing like behavior is also like, that's its own behavioralism as a, just as a form and as a study is its own piece in that, in a lot of places and throughout history like there's been different moments where who children are is just who they are right like i have a friend who will often say like oh they're just being a 3 year old right now or they're just being a 6 year old right and i and i joke oh i'm just being a 41 year old <laughs> right exactly <laughs> <laughs> like, nice <laughs> what am i being right now i'm being a 41 year old mm-hmm. and just like in right and it's just, i think it goes back to what you said about communication and feeling heard we aren't hearing each other we aren't seeing each other as human. And that is why I just think problem after problem that we're seeing in this country, we have stripped each other of humanity. So my partner would argue that he's very anti-social media and Mm -hmm. internet. People can hide behind the screen. People can hide behind, you know, the trolling comments on the internet. And I do think that we don't see each other as human anymore. And that's really really scary to be honest. Like, I don't know where we go from here. I have two questions that I asked to close out this season of the podcast, which I will ask you to answer them as succinctly as you possibly could potentially one word, if not a sentence, pretty basic. So first off is what is postpartum to you?
0: Being tired.
1: so it's forever okay yeah it's forever i don't think
0: it i, I don't think it, i think you're a parent forever i think you're permanently like once you meet your child that's it the child's out of you the child is its own person and now you have to develop a relationship with this creature this child whether or not they are completely reliant on you very difficult very easy very loving very horrible whatever that is you have to develop a relationship Let's say my one word is relationship.
1: (laughs) And what
0: is production? Production is creation. It is making something there that was never there before. Even if it's assembling old things into a new Frankenstein monster. (laughs) (laughs) Which is
1: parenthood too. (laughs) Uh, Well, thank you so much. This was so... Lovely. I love and I'm... To you.
0: This is great.
1: Parenting while working has long been a challenging situation for modern parents, heightened during the pandemic. I found much of our discussion to be particularly relevant as a mom of three young children constantly juggling between their activities and also trying to spend equal amounts of quality time with each of my children, all while producing this podcast and finding time for writing as well. I'm thankful for communities like Pen Parentis to keep me focused on my creative pursuits and plan to become a more connected part of their accountability groups too, as much as I would also like to procrastinate writing my second novel. As an aside, you may have heard my daughter playing in the background during this episode. As I mentioned earlier, I was literally doing what M.M. DeVoe discusses in her book. This episode was recorded right after school was on break and my daughter was in the room. She also contributed a little bit to the conversation, as you'll hear. I'm your host, Caitlin Salamini, and this is the Postpartum Production Podcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating. This will help us reach more listeners like you who are navigating the joys and pitfalls of artistic and parenting identities. For regular updates, visit our website, postpartumproduction.com, follow us on Instagram at postpartum production podcast and subscribe to our podcast newsletter on Substack. Thank you for listening. And we are so grateful to have you with us on this journey. Postpartum may feel like forever, and sometimes it may feel very lonely, but you're not alone here. Well, my daughter, you don't like timers. Do you like babe? Why don't you like I timers? Like timer. Why don't you like timers? She really dislikes when we use timers. What is it about timers? You don't like when and when I forget that it's just the timer, and I get scared that something's
0: wrong, hmm. like What'd it sounds say?
1: like an alarm. She said that it scares, it jolts her. So to your yeah, point scary, of like, you're, you're she's so immersed. Yeah, and then mm-hmm. and then it but if like one
0: second I remember. What's that? But if it's one second, I'll remember.
1: If it's one second, oh, you've forgotten that you put the timer on, and then it's on, and then it's like, whoa, there's a timer on.